quiet. It's starting. The show is starting. <sighs> I'm not a curmudgeonly old man who finally learned the true meaning of Christmas. I'm also not a talented musician who made jazz piano nearly synonymous with a holiday. <laughs> I'm just a schnook. Hi, everybody. I know I just put out an episode, but, you know, I just wanted one more for Christmas. Because I love Christmas. Uh, honestly, I have not really been feeling a lot of Christmassy lately, and I think it's just simply that I don't know, for some reason, Thanksgiving and Christmas and everything in between just kind of felt like it snuck up on me and I didn't even notice. But I'm trying to have a good attitude about it. I mean, I haven't been sad about it or anything. It's just like, it's like, oh my, it's Christmas and I didn't even notice. I mean, we have decorations up in the apartment. We did some Christmas stuff. Like we went to the uh, Christ Kindle market, the German style market that pops up uh, in Chicago every year. We went to the one in Wrigleyville, right outside of Wrigley Field, and inside Wrigley Field, too, and it was really, really cool. One thing I always look forward to with these things, um, there's a vendor, I believe, from Milwaukee. Yeah, yeah, I think it's like the Milwaukee Pretzel Company or something. They have pretzels and root beer mustard, and it's Sprecher's root beer mustard. You can actually order it straight from them. Uh, Lisa ordered a couple of jars from them. I'll put a link to that in the uh, online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. But I love that mustard so much. And uh, there is also a vendor there. I think they're actually imported from somewhere in Europe, like Austria or something, that sells cheese-infused bratwurst. And that stuff is so good. Oh, what's it called? I think it's called the Alpine Brat. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love that stuff so much. Put a little dab of mustard on it, and oh, really, really cool. Especially if it's a cold day and you have a nice hot brat with you. Ooh, nice, nice. And we've been doing our usual Christmas watching. Eight days before I recorded this particular intro, Lisa and I had our annual screening of the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version of Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Every Thanksgiving, we watch Miracle on 34th Street. We used to watch It's a Wonderful Life, but Lisa kind of got tired of that. She doesn't really like that movie anymore. So we haven't watched it in a long time, but I watched it myself before work. Lisa leaves for work much earlier than I start work. So I kind of watched it over two days before work. And I can kind of understand why somebody wouldn't like that movie, because it does go on for quite a long time. I think there are some scenes that could be shortened. And of course, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, I usually watch during our annual Thanksgiving flight to New Jersey to visit Lisa's mom. And I just might watch it again. I just might watch it again because I love that thing so much. Sure, I mentioned it in previous years, but I have a version of that that is 100% intact. I don't think a 100% intact version has ever been released legally but some years ago, somebody cobbled together every different version of that special and sequenced it properly so that there are no scenes missing, there are no songs missing, there's no Kermit narration missing, and that's the version that I use. I think the most recent reissue that came out on DVD and Blu-ray is a little bit better and has most of the stuff and actually is in the correct aspect ratio, unlike the uh, previous version, the one that I have on DVD. But I am very happy to have a totally intact, not missing anything version. I watched Elf actually earlier in the year, probably around August, believe it or not, because I was curious about it. 
And you know, it's a nice movie. It's worth one watch, I think. It's not something I'm going to watch repeatedly. But I, I especially like the New York snark. <laughs> and this year, there was A Christmas Story Christmas, a sequel to A Christmas Story. I watched that by myself on HBO Max. We have a subscription. Uh, Lisa didn't really care to watch it. But I watched it, and I gotta say, I'm really glad I did. I also think that is not going to be something I watch repeatedly, but I'm glad I watched it. I thought it was actually well done. I was disappointed that Melinda Dillon wasn't in it. I mean, the whole thing was, oh, she retired. She's not acting anymore. Oh, come on. If you have the ability, come on back and just do this one more film. You know, you're not in every single scene. A little bit of it was kind of contrived, and I did have one big problem with it. Ralph and his family live on the south side of Chicago. I thought that was cool. Of course, you set a movie in Chicago, I'm already going to be paying attention. Well, there's an establishing shot of downtown Chicago, which, first of all, the shot was taken from the north side, which I thought was weird. It should have been taken from the south side because, hey, Ralphie would have been traveling north to get to downtown Chicago, not south. And while the overall look of the skyline was pretty accurate, for example, there's the uh, Trump International Hotel, I think that's what it's called. They actually digitally took that out because it didn't exist back in, what, when did this take place? 1978, I think. Yeah, that place didn't exist until sometime in the 2000s, like 2006, I think. But there is one detail that, to me, was pretty glaring. There's an old skyscraper in downtown Chicago, which is commonly referred to as the Palmolive Building, because that's where Palmolive had their headquarters for a while. Well, I think it was in the 60s when Playboy took over that building. And until probably the 90s, I think, at the top of the building, the word Playboy was on top of the building in big letters in the Playboy font. And so for a long time, it was actually called the Playboy Building. And I think some people still call it the Playboy Building. Now, my problem is, in A Christmas Story Christmas, in the establishing shot, the word Playboy is not on the building. They could have put it on. They could have digitally typed it in or something, but they did not. It's just blank. I mean, in reality, if you were to go there today, you would see it does not have the word Playboy there. It hasn't had it in years. But I'm like, dude, if you want to be accurate, come on, man. Oh, a fun fact for people who don't know Chicago all that well, on top of the Palmolive slash Playboy building is a beacon. When the beacon was installed, it would rotate 360 degrees at night, and it was really, really cool. And after a while, for various reasons, they shut the beacon down. Well, some years ago, they re-enabled the beacon, but of course, they can't do the 360 spin anymore because there are other buildings around. They don't want to disturb people. For a long time, that was one of the tallest buildings downtown, so there wasn't really anybody to disturb. But now there are taller buildings. So nowadays, only on weekends, the beacon is lit and they limit the panning of the beacon. It doesn't go all 360 degrees. It basically just goes over the lake. But it's still really cool to see that if you're going down Lakeshore Drive at night. So yeah, I watched A Christmas Story. Christmas really liked it. Uh, one film I did not watch this year or last year, but I have seen that I really would like more people to be exposed to. And it's also a Chicago movie. It takes place entirely in Chicago. It's called Nothing Like the Holidays. I've only seen it once, so I don't remember the characters' names at all, but it takes place either in or near 
the Humboldt Park area of Chicago. And there's actually a scene that takes place in the actual Humboldt Park, like the park that actually is Humboldt Park. It's about a Hispanic family. And uh, let's see, the, the character they focus on is just returning home from the army. He was, I think, wounded in combat. It was a minor wound. It, was, it wasn't debilitating or anything. It was a wound to his face that he was recovering from. And he had just been discharged, and he was trying to figure out what to do with his life. His father wants him to take over the family business, but he doesn't think he wants to do it. And he has a brother who is visiting from New York. He moved to New York, and I think he became a stockbroker, and he got married. Uh, Deborah Messing played the uh, the wife, and she was trying desperately to fit in with the family to be accepted and everything. I think there was a sister in the family who flew out to Hollywood to uh, be an actor. And I think she had a bit part in a couple of TV series, but uh, she flew back home to uh, visit the family. And it was a very fascinating movie. And uh, the big part of the plot starts when they're having dinner and the mother announces that she's leaving the father because he's cheating on her. So it becomes apparent at that point that that was the last time they would all be together for Christmas. And uh, things take off from there. Very interesting movie. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, Lisa's school where she teaches is in that neighborhood where it takes place, or at least near that neighborhood. So a lot of her students really relate to it. In fact, that's how she found out about it. And it's not unheard of around Christmas time for a teacher at that high school to show the class that movie. So we sat down and watched it one day, probably about two years ago, and I really dug it. I thought it was really well done. So check it out. Nothing like the holidays. But that's all I'm going to say in this little preamble. Um, speaking of watching, there was some certain watching that I've done this season that I'd like to talk about right about now. Now, I know we all know the story of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, but I figured it would not hurt to go over some of the main points of the story, especially because... Almost all of the variations that I'm going to talk about bring out these details in some way or another. Of course, the story focuses on Ebenezer Scrooge, who is a very tight, miserable moneylender. He has all the riches he could possibly want, but he's such a, a miser that he doesn't even spend anything on himself. He lives in squalor, practically. And he has no generous bones anywhere in his body. His assistant is a clerk named Bob Cratchit, whom Scrooge barely pays at all. Pretty crappy salary. And um, as a result, he just doesn't really have the best life he can have. He does his best. He tries his best. He always has a happy attitude that he uh, brings home to his wife and many children. And of course, his youngest is known as Tiny Tim who has to walk with the use of a cane because he has some kind of undisclosed illness that leaves him at least partially lame. And as we all probably know, Scrooge is visited by Jacob Marley, his late partner who died seven Christmas Eves before the story takes place. He says, look at me, Ebenezer. I have these heavy chains that I have to carry around all eternity. That's my punishment for being basically what you are right now. I wove these chains myself when I lived, and now I gotta carry them around when I die. Don't end up the same way that I did. And to make sure that you don't, I'm sending three ghosts to visit you 
over the next few hours. They're going to show you the way, do what they say, and you might be able to save yourself. So what happens? The ghost of Christmas past comes and shows Scrooge shadows of his past. He wasn't always such a miserable person. Uh, He was a little bit of a loner as a child, but he had some happiness. He had a fiancé who basically dumped him when all he could focus on was his business and especially the money aspect of it. There was the ghost of Christmas present who showed him shadows of uh, what was happening around him roughly at the current time, such as the Cratchits struggling to have food on their table. He sees that Tiny Tim is not in good condition, and in fact, the ghost of Christmas present tells him, I have a feeling he's not going to survive for very long if things don't change. And the ghost of Christmas yet to come shows Scrooge shadows of, uh, apparently not a very far off Christmas, like maybe a year or two in advance. He sees people making fun of his own death, joking that they're not going to go to his funeral unless there's lunch provided. There are people who know him who try to sell off his goods and make a quick buck off of him. It's not really said what exactly caused Scrooge's death in the near future, or if it's something that he could change, but he's seeing exactly what's happening. He's seeing that people are rejoicing that he's dead. And he also sees that, along with him, Tiny Tim is also dead. And seeing all that just makes him change. Uh, As a lot of the narrations say, and I assume this is how it's written in the Dickens book, I've never actually read the book, but a lot of the narrations say that uh, basically Scrooge promised to be a better person, and he was actually under-promising and over-delivering, that he was better than his word, he made sure that Tiny Tim got the proper medical care, and he became a second father to him, he raised Bob Cratchit's salary, and, and uh, some tellings of the tale, he anonymously sent a huge turkey over to the Cratchit house so they could have a nice Christmas feast, but Sometimes he delivered it himself, but regardless, you can see, hey, he's a changed man. Uh, There are a lot of things in common with most of these tellings. For example, Scrooge will tell people, you keep Christmas in your way and I'll keep it in mine. When people come over to his office to try to collect for the poor, he said, what about prisons? What about workhouses? And he's told, well, a lot of these people would rather die than to go there, to which Scrooge would say, Well, if they're going to die, they better do it soon and help decrease the surplus population. That's a common thing that's in almost all these uh, tellings that I have uh, ranked, as it were. He also talks about how people who are so jolly about Christmas ought to be boiled in their own pudding. Ooh, ouch. (laughs) And of course, one thing that is interesting, uh, this much I know, if you were to read A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, the first thing it says, I don't know the exact words, but it says right away, the very first thing, Jacob Marley was dead. And it goes on to talk about how he had been dead for seven years, and I think it even said he was dead as a doornail. So I found that quite interesting. So I just wanted to lay that foundation so I can talk about the seven different versions of A Christmas Carol that I have taken in in the last few days. For God knows what reason, just curiosity maybe, ranking from least favorite to most favorite. And by far, my least favorite, number seven on this list, Scrooged from 1988. And yes, this is the Bill Murray movie in which he plays Frank Cross, who is the president of the fictitious IBC television station. 
Frank orders an all-hands-on-deck situation at the station so they can air a live production of Dickens's A Christmas Carol. It was either Christmas Eve or Christmas. Everybody had to work the holiday. And just as did Ebenezer Scrooge, well, Frank doesn't treat his staff very nicely, to say the least. Well, most of his staff. Uh, he does like to uh, shower his fellow executives with some expensive forehead hi-fi VCRs. Uh, that dates this movie. <laughs> Just as with Scrooge, Frank is visited by the ghost of his seven years dead mentor, Lou Hayward. Uh, you see where this is going? And he tells Frank, there are going to be three ghosts coming to help you avoid the fate that I went through. And of course, hilarity ensues. Well, okay, actually, that's a lie. At least in my personal opinion, hilarity does not ensue, which is the big problem I have with Scrooged. Bill Murray is supposed to be funny. He's a comic actor. And in this movie, in Scrooged, he is your typical Bill Murray. He kind of has that, uh, I, I want to say sarcastic attitude. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but let's just go with that one. And that kind of attitude works in such films as, say, Meatballs and Stripes. But Scrooged? Not so much. Not so much. And because Frank Cross is essentially a prototype of Ebenezer Scrooge, Frank has a huge redemption in the end, vows to be a better person, and to appreciate the joy of the season. But to be quite honest with you, friends, it's really hard for me to tell, with Bill Murray's portrayal, where bad Frank ends and good Frank begins. Next up, number six, is A Christmas Carol starring Alistair Sim from 1951, uh, known better as Scrooge in England. It was retitled for America for some reason, I don't know why. I know that this version is considered by many to be the definitive, but it just didn't do anything for me. Sim's portrayal of Scrooge just felt kind of rushed, and some of the scenes went on for too long and didn't really do much to push the narrative forward. Just didn't like it. Didn't do anything for me. Number five, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, going back to 1962. This is yet another version of the Dickens story that's pretty highly regarded, but to be quite honest with you, I don't understand why. I don't get the appeal. It's pretty much a straight-ahead animation version of A Christmas Carol, but it's uh, actually supposed to be a Broadway stage production starring Mr. Magoo. The first few minutes of the special give you some kind of exposition in that regard. The viewer is shown that it's an insanely huge success on Broadway, and uh, we see Mr. Magoo drive to the theater. Well, attempt to drive to the theater, after all. He's Mr. Magoo. He's terribly nearsighted and is in denial about it. So, of course, hilarity ensues. He heads the wrong way down a one-way street. He ends up not at the theater, but at the restaurant next door. And ergo, the staff at the restaurant has to escort him over to the theater, to the stage door, because they know that's where he's supposed to be. That's about where that whole you're actually watching a play thing ends. Once Mr. Magoo takes the stage and the show starts you are likely going to forget, as did likely the animators, that this is actually a stage play because they forget all about that. It's just basically a retelling, a straight-ahead retelling of A Christmas Carol with maybe a few references to poor eyesight thrown in. And it just, it just doesn't really do anything for me. Oh, by the way, if you watch this particular Christmas special on Freeform, they actually edit out the parts that tell you that it is a stage production you're watching, kind of defeating the whole purpose. 
And because it's a 1962 cartoon, Paul Frees' voice is all over the place. Whether or not that's a good thing, well, that's up to you. Personally, I don't mind his voice, but I always associated his voice with cheaply animated cartoons, so I don't know. What I'm ranking dead center right in the middle of the list is something that I used to watch on TV all the time when I was a little kid, and that is Scrooge, a musical adaptation from 1970 starring Albert Finney as the titular character and Alec Guinness, of all people, as Jacob Marley. I gotta admit, I'm kind of impressed with myself putting this list together. I'm four adaptations in, and each one is from a different decade so far, so how's that for diversity? Anywho, it occurred to me that uh, I have not seen Scrooge since probably the mid-80s, so I'd better sit down to watch it. In fact, it's when I sat down to watch this for the first time in over 30 years that I decided, hey, I'm going to check out some other variations, see how they compare. I gotta say, Albert Finney was a great Scrooge, although I don't think this was a good movie to showcase his singing, given that he had to sing with the evil voice of Ebenezer Scrooge the whole time. And of course, we do see a pre-Star Wars Alec Guinness as the ghost of Jacob Marley, but I didn't recognize him because he looked nothing like Obi-Wan Kenobi. One of the nice things about watching this movie on demand and not from a network TV showing as I got to see a few things that I never, ever saw when I would watch this on WFLD. Most notably, a segment in which Scrooge finds himself in hell, where Jacob Marley sentences him to an eternity of working as Satan's clerk in a freezing cold office. Honestly, though, I seem to remember enjoying this movie a lot more when I was a kid, but now I only find it to be so-so. Some of the musical numbers are pretty good, such as uh, Thank You Very Much. Look it up on YouTube. It's a fun sequence. I think it's on YouTube. I'll put a link to that in the online bibliography. But other than that, eh, so-so. Moving into the top three is something else I enjoyed a lot when I was a little kid, and that is Disney's Christmas Carol, which was originally from 1974. Now, up to now, we've had a feature-length comedy, a double-length cartoon, a black-and-white dramatic film, and a color movie musical. And again, each of those was from a different decade. This time, though, I'm taking it over to another medium, audio only, a record that I got in uh, 1978, maybe 1979, as a four- or five-year-old. I remember there was this ad on TV for a Disney Christmas collection on a three-record set. Two of the records were basically a bunch of Christmas songs sung by Disney characters and choirs and things like the Mike Sams singers of all people. This Christmas, join Mickey Mouse and all his friends. Have yourself a Walt Disney Christmas with this magical new two-record album featuring such Disney favorites as It's a Small World, sung by the Disneyland Boys Choir. But the third record was Dickens' Christmas Carol as performed by the Walt Disney Players. I remember the day this thing arrived at our house. I think it was delivered by UPS, and it was in a thin cardboard package addressed to me. Turned out to be an early Christmas present for my grandmother. I played the hell out of the Disney's Christmas Carol record. All of the Dickens characters were played by Disney characters. Ebenezer Scrooge was played by Scrooge McDuck. Mickey Mouse was Bob Cratchit. Donald Duck was Scrooge's nephew. Pluto was Jacob Marley. Uh, that's just a few off the top of my head. 
I remember in the 80s, I saw an animated version of this in the movie theater. It was a double feature. It was pretty much the exact same thing, almost word for word the same dialogue. Uh, I know because, again, I played the hell out of that record. But I don't recall if the movie had the songs. I could have looked it up. I probably could have watched it, but nah. Now, I seem to remember very vividly that it was a double feature with the Black Cauldron, but an online search tells me that it was actually shown along with a reissue of The Rescuers. But the thing is, I don't remember ever seeing The Rescuers. I had the book and record, but I never remember actually seeing the movie. But uh, regardless, I no longer have the Disney records, but I did find that somebody posted the Dickens record online, so I gave it a listen. And you can too, because I'll post a link to it in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. Well, upon listening to this Disney record for probably the first time since maybe my age had a single digit, I was surprised at how well it aged. The writers were conscientious enough to include humor that was aimed at both the target audience of little kids and their parents who would likely be listening along with them. There's a very nice balance of a highly sanitized ghost story and some genuinely funny moments. Now, number two, and I'm surprised this got as high because I watched this last year and didn't think that it aged very well, but I watched it again just a couple of days ago, and I really enjoyed it, and that's Rich Little's Christmas Carol from 1978. It's one of three Christmas specials I remember watching regularly on HBO when I was a wee lad. The other two were Freddy the Freeloader's Christmas Dinner and, of course, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. But in Rich Little's Christmas Carol, all of the major characters are portrayed by Rich Little impersonating famous people, sometimes using camera tricks so that more than one of his characters can be on screen at the same time. In the Rich Little interpretation, W.C. Fields is Scrooge, Paul Lind is Bob Cratchit, a very masterful Paul Lind impersonation, I might add. I'm doing a new dance. It's called freezing and shivering. Staying alive, staying alive. Edith Bunker is Mrs. Cratchit. Truman Capote is Tiny Tim. <laughs> Inspector Clouseau, as portrayed by Peter Sellers, is the ghost of Christmas yet to come. Another good portrayal, I think. Richard Nixon is Jacob Marley. Columbo is the ghost of Christmas present. And Johnny Carson is Scrooge's nephew, Fred. Now, as I said earlier, most tellings of A Christmas Carol, Scrooge is a moneylender, and he usually charges outrageous interest to his debtors. But in Rich Little's version, Scrooge is in the ship-in-a-bottle business. <laughs> that is, he sells bottles that have little model ships inside them. You, you've seen those things. The W.C. Fields' Scrooge impersonation makes a caricature out of Fields' legendary alcoholism. The bottles that the model ships are inserted into are booze bottles that are emptied by Scrooge, who drinks the libations so fast that Cratchit can't put the ships in the bottles fast enough. Among the highlights of this special are a Karnak bit between Fred and Scrooge and a dead-on Jack Benny impersonation that, uh, that's the boy that Scrooge sends out to buy a turkey. There are a couple of uh, downsides to this special, though, uh, mainly with Rich Little's impersonations. For example, his Edith Bunker impersonation is terrible. 
He doesn't get the pitch quite right. He's way too low. And he makes Edith sound like she has kind of a hybrid Australia-Alabama accent. Bob, did you have a good time today? Was Tiny Tim a good boy? And his Groucho Marx impersonation, well, it leaves much to be desired. But there are several laugh-out-loud moments in this special. Check out this special if you can, and in fact, if I can find an online link to it, I'll put it in the online bibliography. Now, of all the versions of A Christmas Carol that I've seen, not just in ranking these seven, but also just outside of it, including some other versions I saw on TV years ago, uh, the eighth grade class play that I was in um, in 1987, this, what I'm talking about here, is my favorite ever, and I don't think it'll ever be beaten. And that, of course, is from 1992, The Muppet Christmas Carol. And I gotta confess, I never saw this movie until just a few days before I recorded this. I've just been kind of putting it off, but when I found out that the unedited version was coming to Disney+, Plus, I decided now was the time. Unfortunately, unbeknownst to me, um, I watched it a little bit too early. I watched it before they actually put the unedited version on. That includes the missing song, When Love is Gone. But doesn't matter, really, because I still enjoyed The Muppet Christmas Carol so freaking much. I was a bit hesitant to watch this for many years because, in general, I'm not really a huge fan of new Muppets things that have happened since Jim Henson's death. Uh, For example, I still have a problem with Kermit's voice. I mean, certainly there are much better Kermit voices out there, no? But still, I did not let my dislike of Kermit's new higher-pitched voice get in the way of my enjoyment. Gonzo actually stars in this movie as Charles Dickens, who narrates the movie, with some color commentary by Rizzo the Rat, and between the two of them, there's quite a lot of fourth-wall breaking, as it were. Highly, highly enjoyable. Very funny bits between the two of them. Kermit plays Bob Cratchit, so naturally, Mrs. Cratchit is played by Miss Piggy, and Robin is Tiny Tim. And I have to say, the wackiness of the Muppet cast playing against a totally stone-faced serious Michael Caine as Scrooge works amazingly well. Caine took the Scrooge role very seriously, and he refused to play it in any other way but straight and dramatic. And just that whole juxtaposition is absolutely amazing. And I will forever be in awe of how he could talk about Fozzywig with a straight face. There are plenty of appearances by other Muppets as well, such as Lou Zealand, Animal, Beaker, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, and even Sprocket from Fraggle Rock. I'm sure there are others that I'm forgetting to mention, but chances are if you have a favorite Muppet, that Muppet is in this special. Perhaps my favorite casting, though, involved a little bit of artistic license that Brian Henson and company took with the plot. Instead of having just Jacob Marley as a former business partner, Scrooge had two dead business partners, the Marley brothers, played brilliantly by Waldorf and Statler. And um, that's all I'm going to say about that bit, because there's a subtle, or maybe not so subtle, uh, based on how intuitive you are, a subtle bit of humor involved in this relatively minor change that is just chef's kiss. I'm so glad I watched this version of the Dickens classic, and as far as I'm concerned, this is the only way I will ever voluntarily partake in any Charles Dickens ever again. The Muppets nailed it. There will be no better. 
this is it. In fact, I think this is now going to be part of my annual watching, along with Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, Miracle on 34th Street, and of course, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version of Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. If you like The Muppets but haven't seen The Muppet Christmas Carol, well, come on man, stop listening to this damn podcast right now and watch it. Watch Muppet Christmas Carol right now. Bye-bye. Go. Go. Just go. Okay, okay. Before anybody says anything, I know that Tiny Tim didn't use a cane. It was a crutch. It's just that when I caught that mistake in post-production, I I didn't feel like re-recording that part. I was just way too lazy. So just trust me, I knew at the time. Just let, let me have that moment, okay? But anyway, in the previous episode, I talked about four Super Deluxe Editions that I got on Compact Disc, among some of my favorite music. Figured I should discuss one of them in particular, and if you remember what I talked about, you'll know exactly which one I'm about to discuss. And if you still don't, then hey, you're just going to have to pay attention and uh, you'll understand in just a moment and uh, why I'm choosing this episode really should be pretty apparent to you to discuss this. As anybody with a heart who was born sometime between, uh, say, 1960 and today, I love a Charlie Brown Christmas. I'm a big Peanuts fan, and a Charlie Brown Christmas is one of my favorite things that exists on this planet. And part of that is Vince Guaraldi's amazing soundtrack to it. I was so happy to learn, I think it was sometime in the 90s when I learned that there actually was a soundtrack album for it, which made a lot of sense because I had heard, say, Linus and Lucy and Skating on the radio, like used as background music. So I'm thinking there's got to be somewhere you can get those pieces of music. And sure enough, I discovered at my job at the public library that there was a soundtrack album. I checked it out and I absolutely loved it. I had to get my own copy on CD and just play the crap out of it. Sometimes even when it's not Christmas time, because well, a lot of the tracks on it are really non-seasonal, like the Linus and Lucy tune which a lot of people associate with Peanuts as its unofficial theme music. What child is this? Well, that's basically Greensleeves, so without the lyrics, you don't know that it's a Christmas tune. Christmas time is here? Well, if you listen to the instrumental version of it, there are no Christmas lyrics whatsoever. Skating? Nothing seasonal about that whatsoever. For Elisa? That's something every kid who's ever taken a piano lesson, except me, has played at some point. <laughs> So there's plenty of non-seasonal music on there, at least an EP worth, I guess. Well, I think it was during the summer when Kraft Recordings announced that there would be, you know, it seems that there's a reissue of A Charlie Brown Christmas, the soundtrack, every year. And this year was no different. They were, they were going haywire, different colored vinyl versions of it, a couple of different CD versions of it, including a super deluxe edition of it four CDs, and a Blu-ray. The CDs would include two different stereo mixes of the original album, the 1965 version and a new one done in 2022. And CDs 2, 3, and 4 would be recording sessions, so a lot of outtakes. 
I am a sucker for studio outtakes, for the most part. The fifth disc is a Blu-ray, and it includes the 2022 stereo mix of A Charlie Brown Christmas in a high-res audio and a Dolby Atmos mix. You need special equipment to hear that properly. I was so excited to see that it was coming out, and then what happened? Ugh, I lost my job. Lisa said to me, are you really that big a fan that you need that kind of a set? I said, well, <laughs> I kind of don't want to miss out. I mean, it's a limited edition. And she said, well, let's see if you can get a job before this thing goes on sale. And if you can get a job, then knock yourself out. So I said, you know, that's fair. That's a fair way to look at it. And what happened? Well, after my first two weeks filing unemployment, I landed another job. So I pre-ordered this sucker from Craft Recordings. And thankfully, they hadn't sold out yet. Spoiler alert. Now they did sell out. I think right now, if you want any of the 2022 versions of A Charlie Brown Christmas from Craft Recordings, they're all sold out, so you have to get it digitally, or hope that there is something in the aftermarket, or hope that it's under your Christmas tree for you. But I figured I should probably talk about this, because I now have it. I did an unboxing video that I'll be happy to link in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. But I'm going to go over what this is, and I didn't write a script for this. I don't even have bullet points, so this is going completely off the top of my head. First thing i got to tell you is this is a beautifully done package. It measures eh, probably about 7 inches by 7 inches, roughly. And it's not really a box, but it's more a book. On the front cover of it, you have the artwork from the original pressing of the A Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack. The original pressing has some stylized fonts on it. it. says, A Charlie Brown Christmas featuring the famous Peanuts Players original soundtrack, Vince Guaraldi. And it has the Fantasy Records logo, and it says High Fidelity, and a big stereo at the top of it. In fact, the word stereo has the biggest font of everything on here. So I guess the first thing they want you to know is that you are buying a stereo recording. And there's a picture of a slightly decorated Christmas tree with Snoopy somehow sitting on top of it without falling over, falling through, or toppling it. And in front of the Christmas tree are Charlie Brown, Lucy, and Linus holding hands and apparently dancing around it with smiles on their faces. Now, the more common artwork is uh, slightly different. First of all, it's got a white background, while the 1965 version, there's a yellow background on the uh, bottom half of the, uh, or not the bottom half, but the main portion of the artwork. But the uh, later versions are all white. And there's just one basic sans serif font in all capital letters. In small letters at the top, it says the original soundtrack recording of the CBS television special. And then below it, it says a Charlie Brown Christmas Vince Guaraldi trio with the Fantasy Records logo at the very bottom left. And it's a different logo. Still has Snoopy sitting on top of a Christmas tree and Charlie Brown, Linus, and Lucy, except the tree is slightly more decorated. Snoopy's facing the other way, as is Linus, and Lucy's eyes are closed. In the original cover, her eyes are not closed. But with this package from Craft Recordings, you have that original 1965 artwork. On the back of the package, you have the original back cover which doesn't actually list the songs, but it's kind of like a liner notes thing. There's a picture of Charles Schultz and a picture of Vince Guaraldi with little blurbs about them. And then below that, you have a picture of Lee Mendelson, who is the executive producer, and Bill Melendez, who's basically the chief animator and voice of Snoopy. 
and it has biographies of them too. And then below that, you have other fantasy albums of interest. So they're basically pimping other albums that were on that label, done primarily, if not exclusively, by Vince Guaraldi. Interestingly, the original pressing of the album credited just Vince Guaraldi, but later pressings, later reissues, say Vince Guaraldi Trio. In the back of the book are where the discs are. And what's interesting is, when you think about it, the way that this package is organized, it's kind of like how record albums were back when they consisted of 10-inch shellac discs. They were in a book with each disc in its own page, and that's exactly how this is. There are thick cardboard pages containing each of the five discs, and each of the discs has the original dark blue Fantasy Records artwork. Well, maybe not artwork, but label style from back in 1965, and that's a really cool touch. Uh, That little click you just heard was me putting one of the discs back in. The thing I don't like about this is you basically have to touch the playing surface to get the discs out. So if you have this and haven't listened to it yet, or you are about to listen to it, make sure your fingers are clean before you take the discs out. And be prepared to clean the playing surface just to be safe. I should mention that the back of the package actually has a red piece of paper, rubber cemented to it, that has the contents of all the discs on it. Be careful when removing that thing because there is a chance that part of the paper from the back cover itself might lift a little bit. In fact, I'm looking at mine right now. There are a couple of bubbles in it. In the front of the book, there are several pages of really well-done liner notes and some fantastic pictures There are some stills from the TV special. There are some stills that come from somewhere else other than the TV special. You can hear me flipping through it probably right now. As I flip through it, I am seeing that there is a picture of the Peanuts gang dancing. There's uh, Pigpen on a stand-up bass, Schroeder on his little piano, Snoopy on a guitar that looks dangerously close to Paul McCartney's Hofner bass, And then there's Sally, Patty, not Peppermint Patty, but Patty, and Linus dancing around. And on the facing page, there's a picture of Charlie Brown angrily spiking his megaphone. This picture looks a lot like one of the scenes from A Charlie Brown Christmas, but it's not from A Charlie Brown Christmas. There are no details as to where it came from other than a copyright notice. I'm guessing that this might have been from maybe a storyboard or something, especially because there aren't that many colors to it. Everybody's wearing either red or yellow, as opposed to the actual scene, which is also pictured here, which I flip a couple of pages back here for just a moment, which shows that scene, but with more characters in it, and they're all wearing more colorful clothing. Yeah, what's interesting is you see Schroeder on that one what I think is a storyboard, he's wearing a yellow and black striped shirt as opposed to the blue and black striped shirt. And I gotta say that in this other picture that looks like it's from a storyboard, Snoopy's guitar is actually more accurate to the real world as opposed to the actual picture in here in which Snoopy's guitar has two tuning pegs but three strings. I I don't know how that works. But as I page through the book here, there are some really, really great pictures, excellent liner notes, that I'm going to spoil for some of you, so uh, be warned about that. The pictures that are from the TV special are seemingly in chronological order for the most part. There are pictures of uh, Vince Guaraldi, color pictures of Vince Guaraldi, I should mention. And there are some great details about the recording sessions. 
For example, there's some fun facts here. Apparently, the tapes were not cataloged very well, so there's actually a tape box. They don't know what the date is, when it's from. And uh, that is, let's see, that is from disc three. They don't know when some of those sessions are from. They don't know the dates because they weren't logged on the tape boxes or the session sheets or anything. And the liner notes also say that there are some songs that are not included on these bonus discs quite simply because the tape reel is missing or there might be multiple tape reels missing. For example, there are no session tapes containing Hark the Herald Angels Sing or My Little Drum. We do know that there were outtakes because according to the liner notes, the take of Hark the Herald Angels Sing that Lee Mendelssohn put on the album had some of the kids singing slightly off-key, totally unintentional, but Lee Mendelssohn chose that take. When the album came out, Barry Minia, I, th- I don't know how it's pronounced, Minia maybe, but he was the director of the choir that those kids are from. That was an actual church choir. They weren't just some random kids they picked up. But their choir director was with them for the sessions. He called up Lee Mendelssohn and said, hey, there was a take where they all sounded perfect. Why did you use this bad take? Because this guy was a perfectionist, apparently. And Lee told them, well, I want them to be kids. I don't want them to be professional. And in fact, there was a lot of that during the sessions where apparently Barry was very strict when he led the choir, but Lee Mendelssohn and everybody else involved wanted them to just be loose. They were like, hey, just be yourselves, be kids. And thankfully, there are moments on this box set of that happening. For example, there might be a blown take and the kids all just share a big laugh about it. You know, And that's exactly what Lee Mendelssohn wanted. He wanted them to be kind of loose and just be themselves. There's also a take of Christmas Time is Here with the kids just singing, kind of like how they sang that prelude to Hark the Herald Angels Sing. There's a version of Christmas Time is Here that's like that. I think that was a bonus track on a more recent reissue of the soundtrack album. Oh, and speaking of the choir, they actually talked to one of the kids from the choir for the liner notes on this. Uh, let me see. His name was... Dan Bernhardt. And not only did they include some recollections from him, but they also included a picture of one of his paychecks from the recording sessions. Each of the kids got $5 for each recording session and a copy of the soundtrack album from A Boy Named Charlie Brown. And those of you who are not really that 100% versed might be thinking, wait a minute, A Charlie Brown Christmas is from 1965. A Boy Named Charlie Brown is from 1969. Well, you're kind of sort of right and you're kind of sort of wrong. The feature-length film A Boy Named Charlie Brown is absolutely from 1969. So how did they get a soundtrack album to something that didn't exist? Well, there was another thing called A Boy Named Charlie Brown that was produced in 1963. It was a documentary that was supposed to air on TV. Lee Mendelssohn had a sponsor, Coca-Cola, ready to go with it. Vince Guaraldi had recorded a soundtrack for it, but none of the networks wanted it. Which is shocking that a major sponsor like Coca-Cola was ready to pony up the money for it, but they still didn't want it. That's huge. How could you turn that down? However, Fantasy Records didn't want to just throw away that soundtrack album because they put in a lot of work on that. They said, we'll just release the soundtrack album at least so we can at least recoup some of the money. And uh, that soundtrack album is still available. It's called Jazz Impressions of a Boy Named Charlie Brown. And here's a fun fact for you. The version of Linus and Lucy that's on A Charlie Brown Christmas actually comes from that 
a Boy Named Charlie Brown soundtrack album. Now, Vince Guaraldi did record a version of it for A Charlie Brown Christmas, but that's not the version they ended up using. And quite frankly, you can't really tell much difference. The version that he did record for A Charlie Brown Christmas is on the Kraft Recordings Super Deluxe Edition. Now, something I found interesting is that in the liner notes, there was talk about the reason that skating, one of my favorite tracks, that that little waltzy instrumental that was used in the, in the film... The reason that that was recorded was because they needed music to accompany a skating scene. Well, if you remember correctly, when watching A Charlie Brown Christmas, which I did the night before I'm recording this, by the way, the music that's called skating does not actually appear during the skating scene. It only appears in the moment when they're catching snowflakes on their tongues and then Linus uses his security blanket to throw snowballs at a tin can. The only time there's a skating scene is at the very beginning of the TV special. And during that scene, of course, Christmas time is here. The vocal version is playing over it. So I don't know if that means there's another skating scene that was filmed that might be on a cutting room floor somewhere. I somehow doubt that anything that was unused from a Charlie Brown Christmas still exists because, well, if you decide not to use something, then why would you spend the money to process the film? Because it was filmed back then. Now, what I really loved seeing in the liner notes were pictures of the tape boxes. Now, I'm going to get a little bit technical here because I I love this kind of stuff. I told you before that I am a sucker for studio outtakes. Now, I can tell you this much about how things were recorded, at least back then, during the analog tape days. Typically in a studio, when you recorded music, it was recorded to multi-track tape. Like, I'm just going to say four-track tape, which means that one piece of tape was divided into four parallel recordable sections. Fun fact for you, by the way, a standard cassette tape actually has four tracks on it. One track is side one left side, another track is side one right side, and then third track is side two left side, and the fourth track, of course, is side two right side. Uh, If you were to actually put a cassette tape into a four-track deck, that's specifically made for cassettes, and you potted all the tracks up, you would hear one side as normal and the other side backwards at the same time, just to give you an idea of how four-track mechanisms really work. But anyway, what would happen is, in the studio, you might, say, record the instrumental track of a song onto just two tracks while the other two tracks on the tape were left blank. Then what you could do is rewind the tape, and listen to the two tracks you just recorded while having the third and fourth tracks record, say, vocal overdubs or percussion overdubs. The advantage of doing that is that, hey, that's fewer things going on at one time during a recording. The fewer things going on, the fewer people playing, the less chance there is of a mistake being made, and ergo you wouldn't have to restart from the beginning again. And when I heard that there was a 2022 stereo remix, I'm thinking, how can you possibly do much remixing in here? Because this is the Vince Guaraldi trio. You only have three musicians. You have Vince on piano. You have a couple of different guys playing bass, depending on what song it was. And a couple of different guys playing drums, depending on what song it was. So you have three musicians at any given time. And that tells me that assuming they're all on their own individual tracks, there's not much you can do to make things sound any different. I thought for sure, this is 1965, this is professional music, 
they're on four-track tape, so thinking they could have, say, drums on one track, bass on another track, piano on another track, and for the tunes that have vocals, they'd put the kids on the fourth track. No, this was all recorded on three-track tape. I know that because there are pictures of the tape boxes in which they're labeled as three-track tapes. Wow, that's primitive for 1965. A little bit more technical things as to how multi-track recording was done back then. Let's say you recorded your backing track, you went back to it and recorded vocals over it, using up all the tracks on the tape. What if you decide you wanted more stuff on it? You decide, oh, I want to put a tambourine here. You don't have any free tracks. You used up all of them. Or I want to put more vocals on this. I want to put some vocal harmonies on this. Well, too bad. You used up all the tracks you have. So the only thing you could do is either re-record everything or copy that tape onto fewer tracks of another tape, leaving a couple of other tracks open to do those further overdubs you want. Now, keep in mind, this was done on analog tape. Anybody who's ever, say, done a cassette copy knows what happens when you copy one tape to another. The new tape isn't going to sound as good because you lose a generation of sound when recording from tape to tape. So maybe what happened during 2022 is if there was any of those so-called reduction mixes, they might have taken the original tape that had the original instrumental backings and before they did the reduction mix to another tape, they might have taken just the overdubs on the new tape and synchronize them up with the original backing track that they had to reduce. But whatever the case, the remix sounds really, really good. It sounds nice and bright and clean. When I did a comparison between the 1965 mix and the 2022 mix, there really wasn't much difference in terms of how the instruments were placed and at what levels they were placed. The volumes all sound the same. The panning on the different elements sounded the same. The one exception to that was Für Elisa, I believe, which on the original 1965 mix is panned almost all the way to one side, which is weird because you only have Vince Guaraldi playing his piano on that. You don't have anything else. Why would you do that? If you were listening to the original 1965 mix of A Charlie Brown Christmas on headphones and you heard Für Elisa, you would think you were going deaf in one ear. Well, the mix on the 2022 version is much better. It's much more balanced. There's still a little bit of panning, but you get much more volume. It's a little bit more balanced in both of the headphones. So that was really cool. I did notice when listening to the 1965 mix that there were some weird, like, static noises or something that might have been from the original source tape. I don't remember hearing that on any other version of the soundtrack album, and I think that I had read that most versions of the soundtrack album are actually remixes, so that would explain that. Like, I think there were remixes done in the 80s, if I'm not mistaken. If I am mistaken, hey, I'm mistaken. But the 2022 mix, definitely a huge improvement. It sounds better, it sounds brighter, and it doesn't have those little bits of static here and there. And also, I'm pretty sure that the static is not an artifact of, say, the surface noise on the CD. I did an audio rip, and there was nothing to indicate that it was a pop from, say, maybe if I accidentally scratched a CD. Those are very obvious when you look at the waveform in sound editing software. As for the other CDs that have the outtakes, I'm going to admit 
listening to the sessions is not all that exciting because it gets very repetitive. Like I'm looking at the track listing now. You have seven takes of Christmas is coming. You have three takes of Christmas time is here. Uh, the instrumental track you have four more takes of Christmas is coming. So hearing all this stuff over and over and over can be grating. Some of them aren't complete performances. Some of them are, but hearing them break down, just start over for minutes upon minutes on end. does get a little bit boring. It's a little bit different from listening to say Beatles bootlegs because the Beatles would make little silly comments between takes, or they might change things up between takes. But here the Vince Guaraldi players are just trying to repeat the same thing, but just do it better each time, do it right. But there are some very interesting things here. Uh, for example, there are some outtakes of skating that play back even faster than what you are familiar with in A Charlie Brown Christmas. I mean, just listening to skating as you know it, you might think, man, how can somebody be able to play those notes so fast on a piano? Two notes at a time. Oh my goodness. It's even faster on some of these other takes. How Vince did it, I have no idea. And you know that scene when Lucy asks Schroeder to play Jingle Bells? That's on here too. There's one take of Jingle Bells on a piano, followed by two takes of Jingle Bells on an organ. And then the fourth take is Vince trying to simulate a toy piano with Jingle Bells, but they didn't actually use it in the TV special. I think they used an actual toy piano, but that whatever was on the TV special when Lucy says, in presence to pretty girls, that's uh, something that was not in this session. There's a brief performance of going out of my head. Um, it's listed here as an unnumbered take. It was probably just something impromptu that nobody really planned to do. They were just probably goofing around in the studio. And there are a couple of Bossa Nova takes of green sleeves on here. I know one of them was on a previous reissue of A Charlie Brown Christmas. I thought that was really fascinating to listen to. But perhaps, to me at least, the justification for my paying what I paid, I don't remember how much I paid for this. I ordered it back in like September, I think. Whatever I paid for it was worth it simply because of one take of O Tannenbaum. You know that scene when Charlie Brown's walking home with the Christmas tree that he just picked up? That slower version of O Tannenbaum? I always loved that, and I was so disappointed that it was not on the soundtrack album. Only the fast version. I mean, I, mean, I love the fast version too, but I love the slow version. But the slow version is on here. Now, something that Lisa loves about this TV special is during that playing of O Tannenbaum when Charlie Brown's walking home, there's like a really bad audio glitch or something. And I'll tell you exactly why that is. That recording of O Tannenbaum, which is included in this box set, <laughs> that's the justification for the price here. That recording of O Tannenbaum is only about 50 seconds long. So during that scene, there literally was not enough of O Tannenbaum. So that little glitch that you hear is simply a very bad copy and paste. So there's a major spoiler for me, at least, as far as I'm concerned. Disc 5 is a Blu-ray disc, as I mentioned before. It's Blu-ray audio, so there's no video on it, I don't think. I didn't pop it in my Blu-ray player, so I don't know. But it contains three different audio occurrences of the soundtrack of A Charlie Brown Christmas. Two of them are high-resolution masters of the new stereo mix. They're both done 
in 24-bit sound, uh, just to give you some comparison, a standard CD is mastered at 16 bits. One of those mixes is done at 192 kilohertz, and the other is done at 96 kilohertz. Just for comparison's sake, again with a CD, a CD is mastered at 44.1 kilohertz. So you can see that even the lower of the two resolutions here is twice as high as a standard CD. The third occurrence of the A Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack on this Blu-ray disc, as I mentioned before, it's a Dolby Atmos mix. It's kind of a surround sound mix. To really appreciate it, you need to have something like a 5.1 setup or proper headphones, of which I have neither, so I can't really listen to it. I mean, geez, I think to get compatible headphones, you have to shell out like 300 bucks, which I'm not doing. No, if anybody wants to get me a pair, that's another story. Hit me up at autobioitchnookpodcast.com. I did try to extract the audio from the Blu-ray using some uh, software, but unfortunately it's copy protected and none of the software I was able to find could get around it. So I said, yep, sorry, we can't copy. We can't extract this because it has this format of copy protection. The only way I could really listen to any of this stuff on disc five is if I put it in my Blu-ray player, which is currently connected to a TV set. So I wouldn't really be able to fully appreciate it. And I'm just too lazy to connect it to our stereo set because, well, I don't feel like getting on my hands and knees and crawling behind the entertainment center and doing all that rewiring and stuff. But to end this holiday edition of Music for Schnooks, what are my final thoughts on the super deluxe edition of A Charlie Brown Christmas? Well, again, it's sold out. If you want to get a copy, you'll have to get the digital download version which of course doesn't come with all the wonderful packaging. It might be in there digitally. You might get all the, all the liner notes and artwork, but of course you won't be able to hold it in your hands. As a package, it is a gorgeous package. I'm, I'm really glad that I have it. It's really well done. The sound is really good. The selection is great. In terms of a listening experience, though, it's not for everybody. Unless you are a diehard Vince Guaraldi fan and you want every little thing that he ever recorded, this is not for you. There are some really wonderful moments in the outtakes, though, but listening to them back to back to back, it's just not the greatest listening experience ever. What you might want to do is if you still want to get this thing, or if you can, assuming you can, is pick and choose which outtakes you want and just make a playlist of it. In fact, what I think I might do is make an extended A Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack playlist that includes the outtakes that I like, and it includes, say, the different versions of Jingle Bells. But overall, though, for people who do like to have this level of obsession, you cannot go wrong. This is a wonderful package to have, and Craft Recordings, I think, did a fantastic job at it. Thank you to Craft Recordings, and hopefully they will find the missing reels And if they do, hopefully they will make them available as a separate purchase without having to repurchase a whole package like this. But you know what I think I'm going to do? I'm going to shut up now and work on that playlist. And so ends another charming and delightful chapter of Autobiography of a Schnook and uh, a deep dive into A Christmas Carol and a deep dive into the wonderful soundtrack of A Charlie Brown Christmas. 
Charles Dickens, as bleak as I find your writing, and I don't ever want to read your writing, <laughs> I thank you for making this episode possible, and for the late Bill Melendez and the late Vince Guaraldi, and of course the late recently turned 100 Charles Schultz, thank you so much for making this episode possible, and basically for giving me one of the reasons that I really love my life. Having peanuts in my life really, really helps make it good. So thank you to all of you, wherever you are. And thank you, dear listener, for basically giving me a reason to record. The way I like to describe this podcast is it's kind of a self-therapy in a way. And um, it's a good way for me to get my feelings out there. And it's also good to hear back from people who say, hey, I listened, I really liked this episode, or I really agree with what you say over here because I feel it too, or whatever. Uh, even if you disagree, I like that, but still thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to you every now and then. I try to do this at least every month. As you saw in 2022, it doesn't always happen, but hey, uh, why have a life, right? Why, I should just sit in the room and podcast all day, right? <laughs> and of course, I also thank my wonderful wife, Lisa, who's been very supportive of me the entire Good grief, four years I've been doing this podcast. And um, anyway, I'm not sure because I recorded this part before I did any post-production on this episode, but in the event that I used some copyrighted sounds here, I just want to disclaim that they are here for the purposes of demonstrating and for review. Infringement is not intended. By the way, if this little bit of audio sounds like it was awkwardly placed in, uh, it's because it was. I forgot to mention this when I recorded this little ending bit, but you can reach out to me electronically. My email is autobio at schnookpodcast.com. My handle on various social networking platforms is at schnookpodcast. For Mastodon, by the way, it's at schnookpodcast at cityofchicago.live. I'm also on Facebook. Look up Autobiography of a Schnook. All of you listening and those not listening as well, I wish you a wonderful, happy Christmas. If you don't celebrate Christmas, then happy whatever holiday you celebrate, because there are many that are happening around this time. If you do not celebrate a holiday, then just happy day to you, man. Just have a happy day. Because you know what? I really think the good goes around. And man, if they keep cranking out really cool Super Deluxe Editions, it's going to come around my way again. Woohoo! All the best, my friends. Golly, you got mashed potatoes?